0: Hey, it's Shannon Ballard. This month marks six years since the release of the first episode of Southern Mysteries. I never imagined this independent podcast, staffed only by me, would make it this far. I may research, write, produce, host, and promote this show, but the people who have made it possible to continue Southern Mysteries are my amazing patrons. And I want to say thanks to all of my patrons who have supported the show along the way and to my newest supporters of Southern Mysteries, Bobby Ann from Bossier City, Louisiana, Rachel from Gilderland, New York, and Ellen, Sue, Sally, and Amy, who are listening and supporting from mysterious locations. Appreciate your financial support of the show. It's the reason I'm able to continue to research and produce episodes like you will hear today. If you're new here and you're interested in hearing the Southern Mysteries archive, the first three seasons of the show, if you want to hear ad-free episodes, patron-exclusive podcast, I'd encourage you to join Southern Mysteries Patreon. There are two tiers for membership, which gives you options to hear that content that's not available anywhere else. It's my thanks to you for supporting the show. It's easy to opt in and out, so you can check it out for yourself. Sign up and start listening to more Southern Mysteries today at patreon.com slash Southern Mysteries. The death of Daisy Keaton is one of Mississippi's most horrifying murder mysteries. In 1913, the widowed mother of four moved to Laurel, Mississippi in Jones County. For two decades, the Keatons were well known for their money and their family drama. In January, 1935, word spread Daisy Keaton was missing. Then came the news that mutilated remains had been discovered off an isolated road in Jones County. The investigation led police to Daisy's daughter, Weta, who was arrested and quickly dubbed Mississippi's Lizzie Borden. Welcome to Southern Mysteries, exploring history and mysteries of the American South. I'm your host, Shannon Ballard. This is the mystery of the Legs murder scandal. Weta Keaton was known as a woman who was devoted to her mother. They lived in the Keaton home on Cross Street in Laurel, Mississippi, and loved taking road trips to treat themselves to spa experiences across the South. Daisy Keaton was the mother of four adult children in 1935, but she only trusted one completely, her daughter Weta. She had one child who had been accused of attempted murder, then convicted of a gruesome assault in the 1920s. Another was so unsettled by the age of 13, Daisy had the court remove her minor status, only to take legal action when the daughter suddenly eloped with an older man. Weta was Daisy's reliable and steady child until 1934, when there was a dramatic shift. In their complicated relationship, Wita became distant, and many believe she was struggling with her status as a single, unemployed, 30 something woman who lived with her mother. It's believed she was also dealing with mental health issues. On January 19, 1935, Wita was working at her brother in law's filling station when a customer asked about her mother. Wita said she was doing well and planned to visit friends in New Orleans. Two days later, a farmer hunting rabbits with his dogs discovered severed legs along with a portion of a woman's lower torso wrapped in sugar sacks dumped in the woods off an isolated road in Jones County. The coroner informed investigators the remains were that of a woman in her 40s to 50s who had borne children. She was approximately 190 pounds with blondish hair. Immediately, investigators wondered if they had found the remains of Daisy Keaton. She hadn't been seen in two days, and neighbors and some of her family members were concerned that they didn't know where she was. Police asked Daisy's sisters to view the remains. It was a gruesome request, but it had to be done. One of them pointed out an identifying mole on one of the legs, which confirmed the ghastly discovery in the woods was part of the body of Daisy Keaton. Police searched the woods for additional evidence, hoping to find the rest of Daisy, but only found a pair of women's underwear and a piece of white cloth. Police questioned Weta Keaton about the story she told friends and family. Wita changed her story, said her mother had been kidnapped. She told the police chief she and Daisy were riding along a highway when they noticed an old woman walking in the rain. They stopped to give her a ride, and once the woman was in the car, she pulled out a revolver and ordered them to drive to an isolated area. Two men appeared, grabbed her mother, and told Wheatah to drive home and return to them with $5,000 in liberty bonds. Wheatah was interrogated at length and finally admitted the kidnapping was a lie. She said she had, in fact, carried dismembered portions of a body, legs, to the woods and disposed of them, hoping they would not be found but Weta swore she did not murder her mother. Investigators had so many questions about this strange case. Where was the rest of the body of Daisy Keaton? Why would Weta confess to carrying legs into the woods, but deny her mother was dead and any involvement in the murder of Daisy? If Daisy Keaton was dead and Wita didn't do it, who murdered? And dismembered her. Daisy Keaton was not the most beloved woman in Laurel, and her family certainly had a history of mysteries and violence. Daisy was known as a rich, bossy, and overbearing woman who moved her family to Laurel in 1913 following the death of her husband, John. The family had lived in McNeil, Mississippi, where John owned a store and operated a mill he mysteriously died in a railway accident. Some said he threw himself under the train, while others said he was pushed. But there was never proof John's death was anything other than a horrible accident. John Keaton was well insured, with five life insurance policies, two with double indemnification. This meant his death made his widow a very wealthy woman, But the insurance company refused to pay out what was estimated to be nearly $1 million. Daisy Keaton sued and pursued the lawsuit until she won everything she and her children were entitled to. The life insurance was split evenly among her four children with Daisy as trustee. Daisy also inherited her husband's businesses, his property in Louisiana, and his rental properties in Mississippi. She seemed to genuinely struggle with the loss of her husband, and in 1913 decided it was time to leave McNeil for a fresh start near her family in Laurel. Laurel was a small but thriving town that had been established in 1882 by people who came south to buy tracts of land filled with yellow pine forest. Within two decades, the city was booming and known as one of the world's best towns for lumber trade. By 1913, it had grown to a population of 13,000, making it one of the largest cities in the state. Daisy Keaton purchased a home at 539 Cross Street, a convenient location near her parents and her sisters. Her four children were unique. Guido was the devoted one who Daisy always counted on for stability and peace she avoided social interaction and often turned inward, barely speaking to her siblings. Daisy's son Earl was her wild child, a hothead who turned into a criminal in his adult life. She also had two headstrong daughters, Maud and Eloise. Maud married and established her own home away from her controlling mother by 1917. Eloise was the wilder daughter, always looking for an adventure. She never cared about consequences, unlike Weta, whose shy nature made her a bit of a homebody as she aged and remained at home with Daisy. Born Juanita Keaton, everyone called her Weta. All of the Keatons were beauties, but Weta was said to have been the prettiest with a curvaceous figure, brown eyes, and a fashionable brunette-bobbed hairstyle. Even as the Great Depression began to affect the nation, And then Laurel, Weta and her mother, wore fashionable clothes with sapphire and diamond rings. Weta graduated from high school in 1920, then attended Seoul Business College in New Orleans. After only two months away from home, she informed her mother she planned to return to Laurel. Daisy's financial situation meant Weta didn't have to work, but she wanted a little something of her own, and it seemed a job would be good for her, help her be a bit more sociable. Wita applied for jobs at several businesses in Laurel, including a secretarial position at the W.M. Carter Lumber Company. The owner, William Carter, was so impressed by the application he received in the mail, he sent word that he wanted to hire her, and she would have a job in Laurel when she returned. William Carter was a respected, successful businessman in Laurel, The married father was a churchgoer who cared about his community and looked out for his neighbors. When Weta walked into his office her first day, it was the early 1920s, she was about 22 years old, and he was 52. Weta was a hard worker who started as secretary, and over the 12 years she worked for William Carter, would be promoted to confidential secretary and then office manager. She greeted customers, was a bookkeeper, helped with sales and organized company events. Carter appreciated her talents, her charm, and especially her appealing looks. Weta had never been particularly social. She had spent her childhood at home with her mother and, by adulthood, preferred to stay home and had never dated. But there seemed to be a connection between Weta and William which Daisy Keaton couldn't see. William Carter began visiting the Keaton home to check in on Wita and her mom. In the 1920s, this wasn't considered strange or inappropriate because married men often checked in on single women to make sure they had what they needed. Sometimes he would leave his wife and children at night to visit the Keatons. There were times he brought his wife along to ward off any gossip, about anything inappropriate going on in the house. Daisy Keaton was in her 40s, and it's possible she believed William Carter was interested in her. All the while, there was more to Weeta and Carter's relationship, and Daisy seemed unable to imagine someone would prefer the affection of her daughter over her, especially a man in his 50s. William and Weta were very careful about their displays of affection. They worked out a system where William hid love notes for Weta in the sofa, notes she would reach for when he left the Keaton home to return to his family. William and Weta had an intimate relationship of some kind, which made William Carter protective of Weta when her family faced challenges, and there was a lot of trouble with Weda's siblings. In 1922, her brother Earl was arrested, tried, and convicted of the criminal sexual assault of a young woman. Earl and two of his friends convinced the woman to get into a car with them and drove her to a back road in Laurel where they all attacked her. All of them warned her. If she told anyone what happened, she would be dead within 24 hours. The woman ran for help and courageously shared her story in the hope the men would be arrested and never do this to someone else. As news spread in small-town Laurel, people from all walks of life, all classes, were united in their rage over what happened to this woman. A lynch mob gathered around the courthouse, demanding the sheriff let them hang these men for what they did. William Carter was a prominent man who joined in with city leaders, calling for peace and letting justice run its course. As Carter and others appealed to the crowd for calm in front of the jail, police were able to escort Earl Keaton and his fellow prisoners out of the jail so they could be transported to another facility. Earl and these men who carried out the attack were sentenced to life imprisonment, but their verdicts were overturned on appeal due to the intense coverage of the case in Jones County and the refusal of the judge to grant the defense request for a change of venue. Daisy Keaton didn't defend Earl. She acknowledged his crime. Their already distant relationship was never the same, and he wasn't the only child that caused trouble for Daisy. We'll never know why, but Daisy Keaton petitioned the court to revoke the minor status of her 13-year-old daughter, Eloise, in 1920. Eloise gained full control of her inheritance and the right to make all of her decisions as if she was an adult. Within five years, Eloise eloped with an older man she met at a carnival. Eloise, who was 18 when she married, was tracked down by her mother, Daisy who was irate over the elopement and the shame it brought the family. The couple were headed towards Chicago when Daisy Keaton called in law enforcement friends to arrest Eloise's husband, claimed he lied about Eloise's age on the marriage certificate. He was arrested, and Eloise was convinced to return to Laurel, to her mother's house, where a lawyer was called in to begin the process of an annulment. But Eloise's husband returned to Laurel within a week. He demanded to see his wife. But Daisy, Weta, Earl, and even William Carter all at some point refused to let him enter the Keaton home to see Eloise. He responded by suing all of them for alienation of affection. Eloise's husband was asking for over $100,000 in compensation. The case was tied up in court for more than a year, until an appeal court ruled Eloise's husband was not entitled to any compensation. But the ruling held further complications for the Keatons and challenged their financial security. Daisy's lawyer had argued she should have been the only person named on the lawsuit, which the appeal court agreed with. Part of the ruling stated that if the charges were filed again, only Daisy could be named as a defendant. It also granted a seven-year statute of limitations for the lawsuit to be renewed. That ruling changed the financial status of the Keatons and caused even greater stress within the family. Daisy chose not to wait around seven years to see if she would get sued again and lose a lot of money. Daisy made the decision to trust the daughter who had never let her down, had never left her she transferred the title of the Keaton home into Weta's name, along with all of her assets. This meant if Daisy was sued again, she would hold no valuable assets until the statute of limitations expired in 1932. The statute passed, and Daisy was ready to retain control of her money. But for some reason, by 1935, all of Daisy's assets were still in Weta's name. Despite family members overhearing Daisy ask Weta to make arrangements to return financial control to her. Weta had her own money, but in 1932, she faced a professional setback when William Carter's lumber company was forced to close because of the Great Depression. She had grown comfortable always seeing William at work, and it created a divide between them. She was a single, 30-something, jobless woman living with her controlling mother. People noticed Weida seemed stressed. She had always been shy and reserved, but around 1932, she began to show signs of frustration, seemed on edge. Little things would set her off before she quickly regained her composure. Because this was the Depression era— many people were under constant stress and anxiety, which may explain why no one seemed concerned about WIDA's outburst. For a short while, WIDA left Laurel to spend time in New Orleans, where she hoped to open and manage a hotel. But to do that, she needed a hotel management course, which took her to Washington, D.C. for a while. When she returned to Laurel, she seemed to suffer... A mental crisis of some kind. She told her family she was engaged, but wouldn't tell her family who her fiancé was or when she planned to marry. And the already stressful situation at home with her mom was made worse when Daisy asked her son Earl and his wife to move in and keep her company. Daisy feared being alone when Wida left to open that hotel in New Orleans. Weta's brother-in-law felt she needed time away from the house, so he offered her a part-time job at his filling station, which Weta quickly accepted. By early 1935, Earl and his wife had moved out of the Keaton home, and it was once again Daisy and Weta living in the house on Cross Street. Weta's family would later reflect on her behavior between 1934 to 1935 and acknowledged she experienced episodes where she seemed completely separated from reality. When she was arrested on suspicion of the murder of her mother in January 1935, her family hired the best defense team money could buy. But Wita alluded to a confession of murder when she acknowledged to police she had carried those severed legs to the woods, but would not admit whose legs they were. With only a portion of Daisy Keaton's remains being found, prosecutors had to establish proof Daisy Keaton was dead. Realistically, no one could have survived the injuries that led to a significant portion of their remains being dumped in the woods of Jones County. But legally, no complete body meant no complete story of the crime. The last known sighting of Daisy Keaton was around noon on January 19th, 1935. Daisy visited a neighbor to borrow milk. She chatted with a neighbor and made arrangements to return that Monday for more milk, but she never returned, which was unlike Daisy, who always did what she said she was going to do. When Weta was arrested, she was taken to the Jones County Jail, and police asked for her permission to search the Keaton home. She agreed on the condition her brother Earl was in the house when it was searched. Earl told police he hadn't seen his mother since the Wednesday before the discovery of those remains in the woods. He said he didn't know if their mother was dead or alive, and he wanted answers. He gave them permission to remove the evidence they found in the home. bloodstains in the middle of Daisy Keaton's bed and on a rug beside it, there was a trail of blood specks leading from Daisy's bed to the bathroom. Investigators removed bloodstained wood from the bathroom floor facing and another piece of bloodstained wood, a floor joist from near the fireplace in Daisy's room. Tests confirmed it was human blood on both pieces of wood, and human blood was also found on cleaver-like butcher knives in the Keaton home and blood was found in the Keaton's car. Police interrogated Weeda for a day and a half. They laid out the evidence they found and grilled her until Weeda Keaton broke. She told them her mother was dead, but she had not killed her. She claimed her lover, William Carter, murdered her mother and dismembered her body. The already shocking Legs murder scandal was making headlines nationwide the gruesome discovery of part of the remains of a wealthy Southern woman interested readers. And now there was the salacious news that her beautiful daughter had an ongoing affair with her older married boss for well over a decade. 67-year-old William Carter was jointly indicted with 33-year-old Weta Keaton for the murder of Daisy Keaton. Weda stood trial first in a courtroom overflowing with spectators. There were more than 1,000 spectators at the courthouse, but only 500 seats. Many women brought along sewing and knitting to work on during recess, so they wouldn't have to get up and lose their seat. Once Oua had been arrested and interrogated, she changed her story about the murder several times. She confessed. Blamed her lover. Then she said she was innocent, that he was innocent, and then she pinned it all on William Carter again. When she was indicted, her health declined to the point that when she entered the courtroom for her trial, her defense pleaded insanity. Wheatah had to be placed in a wheelchair and rolled near the jury with a nurse near her in case she had an episode. Spectators said she appeared lifeless at times stared at the ceiling throughout the trial. Weta's defense started the proceedings by arguing that the case could not move forward because the death of Daisy Keaton had not been proven. The judge overruled the motion, and spectators in the court heard the shocking evidence and gruesome details of what prosecutors believed really happened to Daisy Keaton. In addition to the blood evidence in the home, a witness who lived near the site where Daisy Keaton's legs were discovered testified that the night before the discovery, he saw Weeda Keaton driving down his road. Police confirmed they found a set of car tracks at the scene that matched the Keaton's car. The jury heard the undertaker and coroner testify to the state of the remains found in the woods, and over objection of the defense were shown photos of different views of the remains of Daisy Keaton. Testimony also revealed that during the search of the Keaton home, investigators noticed the hearth walls on each side of the fireplace had been freshly painted and the floor in front of the fireplace had been freshly cleaned. The fireplace and its contents were examined with stains seen on the left wall of the inside of the fireplace. Samples of the fireplace contents were presented into evidence with an expert testifying Parts of human bones were found in that fireplace, along with a bit of steel from a woman's girdle. Everyone was asking the same questions. If Daisy Keaton was killed in her home, how was she killed? Who did it? And why? The prosecution theorized a 20-inch long iron poker and a gun Weida borrowed from her brother-in-law were the murder weapons. They claimed she hit her mother with a poker and then realized her mother was still alive, which meant she had to shoot her. As to motive, they theorized Wita murdered her mother to keep all of that family money that had been transferred into her name, or she had killed her mother because Daisy learned about her affair with William Carter and told her she had to stop seeing the only man she had ever loved. You don't have to prove motive to prove somebody is guilty of murder. You have to show that they killed somebody with malice or forethought. Either there was a plan or it was spur of the moment. Prosecutors said the evidence they presented at trial proved Daisy Keaton was dead, even if the rest of her body had not been found. What happened in the Keaton home in January 1935? The amount of blood found between Daisy's bed, the bathroom, and the fireplace— made it clear there was a murder in that home, and Daisy was dead. To dramatically prove their point, prosecutors displayed Daisy Keaton's legs as evidence before the jury. They placed them in a small box that was brought into the courtroom, and the shocked jury watched as the box was intentionally placed on the floor near WIDA, who never looked down. One of WIDA's confessions included a version of the murder and dismemberment of Daisy Keaton that's been accepted as the true story of her demise. Daisy was murdered by WIDA, and William Carter dismembered the body, or at the very least helped dismember the body, to try to help cover up what WIDA had done. Disposing of Daisy's remains proved to be a challenge. WIDA burned some of the remains in the fireplace— and fleshed portions of the remains down a toilet until only the legs and a bit of the torso remained to be disposed of in the woods. Weta testified in her defense, but it didn't help her case. On March 12, 1935, Weta Keaton was found guilty and sentenced to life imprisonment for the murder of her mother. Weta never moved or acknowledged the verdict, She was immediately transported back to Whitfield, the state mental facility. William Carter stood trial that May, with WIDA as the state's star witness. His family stood by him, defended him, and testified on his behalf at trial. His defense presented evidence that William was in Mobile, Alabama, on Sunday, January 20th, the night it's believed Daisy Keaton was murdered. If he wasn't in Laurel when Daisy was killed— He couldn't have been involved in the crime. But the prosecution called a medical expert to the stand who questioned the timeline of the murder, saying it was possible the murder had been committed on Monday, the same day the remains were found, and therefore it was possible William Carter was in Laurel when Daisy was murdered. William Carter was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison, but his case was overturned on appeal in 1936. His defense learned some of the jurors had spoken about William Carter's guilt before the trial started and during the trial. The court ordered a new trial for William Carter, which never happened. To retry Carter, the state needed the testimony of Weta Keaton, which was impossible. Following her conviction, Weta was moved from Whitfield Mental Hospital to a prison, but her mental state was very fragile. Three days later, she suffered a breakdown and was transferred back to Whitfield. Weida was diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic, and her treatments included electroshock and hydrotherapy, which left her mute and unresponsive. She was declared non-compass mentis. William Carter maintained his innocence and, unlike Weida, never changed his story. He was away from Laurel when Daisy was murdered, and he did not conspire in any way to kill her. Although he never faced trial again, that cloud of suspicion hanging over him, along with the shame of allegations of his affair with Weta, ruined him. He remained in Laurel until his death in 1949, at the age of 81. Weda Keaton was held at Whitfield until her death in 1973. Before her health declined and Weta became unresponsive, she was often heard talking to her mother Daisy after her mother was murdered. It seems Weta's brain was playing tricks on her, unable to face the reality of what happened to Daisy. Following Weta's trial, Daisy Keaton's legs were buried in the family cemetery in McNeil. It said a pastor agreed to hold a graveside service in the middle of the night because of the public's obsession with the case and the family's concern that if the public knew where the legs were buried, there could be grave tampering. When Weeda Keaton died, she was laid to rest next to her mother. Legend says if you visit the Keaton plot, it's easy to spot Weeda's grave. It's the only grave with a bare patch of earth where grass refuses to grow. Southern Mysteries is created and hosted by me, Shannon Ballard. Weida Keaton has been called Mississippi's Lizzie Borden because of the debate the case still stirs up. Lizzie Borden was acquitted of the murder of her father and stepmother, but the public sentiment has forever been divided over whether or not she really was a heartless killer capable of killing her own father. Weedah was convicted, but the public sentiment was divided over whether she could have murdered her own mother. After all, Daisy had a lot of tension in her life and it made some enemies along the way. Her own son had been accused of murder and convicted of a vicious assault. Daisy was overbearing and not exactly a beloved woman in Laurel. Could someone else have murdered Daisy Keaton? Or did just snap after years of being controlled by her mother. That could explain why her mental health declined and she seemingly disappeared into herself long before the treatments at the mental hospital. But there is another theory as to what caused Weida to mentally snap. Some believe it's possible Weida witnessed her mother's murder and then agreed to help clean up the crime scene and dispose of the legs to protect someone she cared about. The reality is, we'll never know. The truth of what happened to Daisy Keaton in 1935, including the location of the rest of her remains, will forever be a mystery. For all the obsession over this case in the 1930s, very little was written about it beyond some features in detective magazines of the 1950s. The Legs murder scandal had faded from memory until Hunter Cole, a retired employee with the University of Mississippi Press, began to research the story. In 2010, he published the book that was a key source in researching this episode. Hunter Cole's The Legs murder scandal is a tough read at times if you have a weak stomach. I've spared you some of the details about the state of the remains found in the woods. But that book is a rich resource if you're looking to learn more about the Keatons and a murder mystery that will forever be a haunting part of Mississippi history. I'll drop a link in the show notes along with all the sources for this episode. And hey, if you're craving more Southern mysteries and want to hear the show archives and lots of bonus episodes in the patron-exclusive podcast I've shared over the years, you'll find a link to the show Patreon in the show notes where you can sign up to support this independent podcast and dive into stories you can't hear anywhere else. You can also support the show by recommending it to friends and writing and dropping a review where you're listening, which helps Southern Mysteries get attention in the podcast algorithm for people looking for historical true crime podcast. It's a big help when you do that, and I appreciate it. As always, thanks so much for listening to Southern Mysteries.